0: You need to disrupt yourself and you need to be willing to go back to the learning phase and to become a student again.
1: That's Dory Clark, renowned professor, branding expert and bestselling author.
0: Maybe that means, you know, learning about new emerging things. You know, what are the legal issues uh, with regard to cryptocurrency or whatever the thing is? But it's useful to start asking those questions and to not stagnate and assume that you can coast forever on your successes. We have to keep learning and growing.
1: I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of CRISP, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. CRISP started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Dory Clark to discuss the real reason why we're so busy, how to practice strategic patience, and why growth is an infinite game.
0: We have to keep it all in perspective. It should not feel like an exhausting slog until death. That is not the point. The point is, actually, if we keep learning and keep growing, each time around the block, it should get more fun because we're able to enjoy it with fewer of the intense pressures that perhaps we faced on the the initial time when we were first learning or first building those connections.
1: That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Dory Clark is an expert at self-reinvention and has been named as one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world. She's a frequent contributor to publications like Forbes and the Harvard Business Review and is also the best-selling author of The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. I began our conversation by asking Dory about her journey to becoming the thought leader she is today.
0: One of the memories that I have of trying to figure out my career path was when I was a senior in college and really starting to kind of stress out about what I was going to do with my life. I went to some kind of workshop at our career services office where they said, "Well, just make a list of the things that you like to do and then you can kind of, you know, reverse engineer and figure out what career would let you do those things." And I had this really kind of short list because basically it was I wanted to read the newspaper and tell people my opinion. And so, amazingly, I've managed to somehow find a job where I
1: can pretty much do that, so I feel lucky. So in the book, you talk about early on that there was like two things that you hate in the world, one of them being patience, which is, I guess, a degree of irony to a person who hates patience writing a book called The Long Game.
0: It's true. You know, they always say we uh, we we teach what we need to learn. But my whole life, you know, my my childhood, I was super impatient. I really... You know, I know that there's a lot of people who kind of wax rhapsodic about childhood and oh, it was so wonderful. I, you know, I wish I could, you know, go back to those long- languid days of catching tadpoles or, you know, whatever their memories are. I don't know. I hated it. I hated being a kid. I hated being told, "No, you can't drive. No, you can't vote. No, you can't open a business. No, you can't do this." It was just sort of a series of things that I wanted to do that I thought were interesting that I was not allowed to do. And so I was very impatient for things to happen. And that's continued. I think many of us professionally can empathize with it that you know, whether it's trying to land the next rung on the career ladder or getting invited to the big case instead of the small case or whatever it is, many of us have longed for things to move just a little bit faster. And the truth is sometimes there are things that we can do to make that happen and to hasten the process, but also sometimes we can't. And so that's why one of the concepts that I talk about in the long game is what I call strategic patience. Because the idea of just like sitting on your Barca lounger and waiting for things to happen is really super not appealing. But for me, strategic patience means kind of threading the needle and understanding the distinction that there are some things you really just literally can't speed up. I mean, you can't make a crop grow faster just because you want it to grow faster, but it also means you don't have to be passive. There are things that you can do. There are hypotheses that you can be testing that can enable you to be as smart as you possibly can in the process of waiting.
1: And speaking of strategic patience, I, I want to talk about strategic thinking because I know early on in the book, you talk about just the real reason why we're all so busy. And I wanted to build the case for the importance of strategic thinking, right? So to be able to focus on long-term priorities, because you mentioned that at senior leaders and organizations, this is them saying that the more time I spend on this, the more successful our organization will be. And yet those same people are also saying they don't have enough time to do any long-term strategic thinking.
0: Yeah, it, it is absolutely a, a central irony that as i was writing the long game this book about strategic thinking i realized of course it's not that there are people out there who actively hate strategic thinking it's not like there's kind of an anti strategic thinking constituency pretty much everyone agrees that oh yeah this is this is a beneficial thing but the problem is not that people don't like it the problem is that nobody does it because they're so busy. They're so rushed. And I really wanted to try to dig in and understand, all right, like what are the obstacles? Why is this the case? Why is it so hard to actualize this thing that everybody seems to claim is so useful and so important? So really digging into that was one of, one of my goals so that I could understand the mechanisms that are blocking us.
1: And what would you say? I mean, what, what are some of those reasons? Like one of the things you discuss is it's busyness as a way of increasing our social status, right? Saying that I'm busy and that, you know, as a result, I must be important or potentially a distraction from asking ourselves uncomfortable questions of like really dealing with, well, how do I want to be spending my time and what do I want to be doing? Like, are those some of the reasons? Or are there others too?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a myriad of reasons, as you can imagine. And I actually, back in the fall, I gave a, a TEDx talk at TEDx Boston specifically about this question. You know, what the, I called it the real the real reason we're so busy and what to do about it. Because oftentimes our intentions are a little bit masked. We consciously can identify things, and I mean, this is not wrong. That oh, we have so many emails. Oh, we have so many meetings. Well, of course, yes, that is true. But also there are oftentimes some emotional reasons that are overlaid on it that make it harder, that make it more complicated. One of them that you mentioned is a status question that for many of us, we culturally, or perhaps how we've been brought up, we view busyness as a form of status. Like, oh, I must be important. I must be essential to this enterprise if I am wall-to-wall with everything. Sometimes it's frankly a form of avoidance because if you are so busy executing you don't really have time to ask yourself big questions, which frankly may be uncomfortable. Like, am I at the right firm? Am I focusing on the right things? If X is my goal in five years, are the things I'm doing today going to bring me closer to that or not? Those can be things that we don't know the answer to, and that can be a little confronting. Or... Maybe we kind of do know the answer to it and we just don't want to face it. And so just leaning into the minute um, day-to-day hurly-burly of busyness is oftentimes a, it's kind of a trick we pull on
1: ourselves. And you mentioned the first step or, or a place to start, at least, is creating white space. Like, what do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so, you know, in a literal sense, I mean, where the term comes from is, you know, you think about your calendar, right? For many of us, if we look at our calendar, whether it's on our phones or our computers, it is just this wash of, you know, blue ink or, you know, green or whatever your color is. I have a nine o'clock, I have a 10 o'clock, I have an 1115, I have a 1230, and you're so back to back, you barely have time to go to the bathroom, much less, you know, be strategic. So having white space, you know having unscheduled unstructured time is really important i mean first of all it's an important in a practical sense because we all know of course emergencies come up, you know, all of a sudden, maybe it's, you know, oh my God, the client needs the blah, 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 or, you know, oh, we, you know, we didn't expect this to happen. And there, you know, there's some thing that you need to hop to because it is critical. I mean, maybe it's not even anything that profound. On Friday, my neighbor's bathroom somehow erupted into my ceiling. And so I somehow had to fish out about five hours of time on Friday to deal with flooding that was not fun and that was not cool but it really for sure needed to happen so having white space enables us to be a little bit more flexible so that when there is an emergency you actually can attend to it without it causing you know its own sort of uh, subsidiary crashes in your own schedule but above and beyond that it's the unstructured time the white space that enables us oftentimes to get the distance, from what we're doing, so that we can make connections and have the ability to get into the headspace, so that we actually can do strategic thinking. Now, you know, I'm curious for you, Michael. I mean, you obviously run your own coaching firm. Uh, how do you think about these things? Do you feel like your schedule is is back to back, or how how do you make white space for yourself, or do you?
1: So I have done a complete 180 on this over the years. And when I was in the early years, when I was starting the business, I had this in my mind, this like idea of success that I would have back-to-back meetings and calls. And I would always have an appointment to get to versus fast forward today. And my goal is to have the maximum amount of white space as possible, to like have the least amount of commitments. And the reason for that is I've just, you know, you realize that like when you're over-scheduled, your decision-making suffers. It's also based on the different types of meetings you're having. It's very difficult to look at things from like manager versus maker, right? And even how you apply creativity. I'm curious though, because as, as we're talking about this, I imagine there's somebody listening and, it's, and they're thinking, okay, Michael and Dory, that's easy for you to say, but I have to do this, right? Like I have to respond to this client. I have to go to court. I have to do X, Y, and Z. How do I make white space? And I, and I think a lot of that starts probably with the realization of what we choose, what we commit to. But what would you say to that?
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it is true. Some of us do have more discretion than others. That is true. If you are an entrepreneur, if you're, you know, the boss in whatever situation and I face this, there are a lot of things that I, I say, oh, I have to, but you really do have to reckon with the fact that, no, technically, I choose to. that that actually is true, that I have discretion over it, and I may feel pressures that feel like they're mandatory, but there's very, very little that actually is mandatory. And so, I think where we get into trouble is that for obvious, very human reasons, we don't want to make hard choices. And so our our magical thinking answer is, oh, well, we'll just do all of it. It'll work out. And that's what leads us to a bad place where we are constantly feeling behind. But if you are in a situation where you're an employee, you are working for someone, the terms of your employment may literally be, no, you have to. And in those situations, first of all, we do have to be realistic about that. But secondly, I think it is useful and important. If your boss is a thoughtful person, if you are feeling constantly behind, if you are feeling like, wow, I have literally no slack in my schedule. If an emergency happened, I really couldn't even deal with it because there is not the bandwidth for that. That's actually a fairly precarious position to be in, not just for you, but for the firm. You need a little bit of slack. I mean, it's a tension, right? I mean, you know, any business, right? You know, we want to minimize slack. Well, guess what? Over the past two years of supply chain mishegas that we've seen, we realized. Oh, maybe Slack was there for a reason because now you order lawn furniture and it takes 36 weeks to arrive, which is not a cool situation for any of us. Obviously, you know, we're not presenting it as, you know, I need more Slack, I need more free time, but the crucial element here is that if you are so overloaded that you couldn't deal with an emergency if one arose, any rational boss if presented with that would probably realize oh, that is a weakness in the system that we really should not be countenancing. And they might be able to help you triage or prioritize or offload some of what you're doing
1: or stop doing some of what you're doing. Creating white space is critical when it comes to accomplishing deep and meaningful work. However, this requires being intentional and proactive when it comes to the way we spend our time and where we put our focus. I asked Dory to elaborate on how to decide which invitations and commitments we should accept and which ones we should decline. Derek
0: Sivers is most famous as the entrepreneur who 15 years ago, give or take, was the the impresario behind a indie music online store called CD Baby, which was quite innovative with its marketing um, methods and things like that. And has kind of reinvented himself as a, a speaker, thinker, etc. One of the frames that he likes to use, which he actually borrowed from a friend of his, is hell yeah or no. And to break it down, part of the reason why I think that this is so helpful, most of us as rational people are pretty good if if something is an outstanding offer we're probably smart enough to say yes and if something is a terrible offer we're also probably smart enough to say no but the place where most of us get ourselves into trouble is for the middling offers you know let's call them like the fours to sevens you know on a scale of 10 and we often talk ourselves into it because it's like, well, you know, it's no money, but there might be potential clients there or there might legitimately be good points. Like, well, you know, it's a little bit of money or, you know, but I might meet the right people or who knows, but it's balanced out with negative things. And what Derek Siver says is like, you know what? You could spend all your time doing that. You could spend all of your time swooping up these just sort of minor things and because time is finite, you don't have time. You wouldn't have time in your schedule for the great thing were it to come along. And so he says, far better to give yourself the space and the flexibility. So you say no to all of those middling things. Instead of justifying them, instead of hemming and hawing about whether you should do it, just say, look, if it's not a hell yeah, which you know we can sort of roughly say is a like a nine or ten on the awesomeness scale, then just say no to it and make your life easy for yourself. And I think that that's often for people who are busy, who are overstretched, which frankly, it's a lot of people and a lot of attorneys, it's not a bad frame.
1: Now, I guess on the other side of this, when are the times where you wanna say yes? I mean, outside of just being a hell yeah, I, I imagine when you're early on in your career or you're, you're really trying to grow, like you don't wanna say no to every opportunity that stands in your way, right?
0: Right, right. I think one of the important elements of this, and I'm glad you're mentioning this, is that different times call for different circumstances, right? So, you know, it's very different if you're a first or second year associate as compared to a senior partner, right? When you're a senior partner your time is so precious because there are so many people that want things and need things from you, right? People need supervision. You've got clients, you're doing rainmaking. You've got partner management duties, like all these things. And so if some kind of completely random person's like, hey, I'd love to pick your brain. It's like, oh my God, no. Like, I mean, unless this is like the son of your biggest client, you need to say no to that really, really fast because there's so many other high value things you need to be doing instead but conversely if you are you know early in your career or let's say you're you're in a new circumstance maybe you had a lateral move into a new firm something like that you're you're just figuring things out you don't know who's who you don't know what's what Say yes to the coffee. Say yes to meeting people because you don't even have enough data to form an opinion. You know, start out by saying yes to almost everything because that will give you the data points so that you can actually learn quickly how to orient yourself and like, oh, well, who should I be talking to? Who, you know, where does the power lie? Who are the relevant people? Who are the knowledgeable people? You can begin to get the lay of the land, but it's really essential to understand where you are on that arc
1: as we talk about the long game, like just setting the right goals. So there's really two parts to this uh, that I want to ask you about. One is, you know, when when it comes to setting the right goals, we often talk about vision and being clear on it. Um, And if you're not clear on it, there's a chance you'll be half-hearted and you'll never stick with it. Um, There's a part in the book where you mention that a lot of like Western culture optimizes for money, and perhaps we should consider optimizing for meaning and impact and maximizing our interests. If if you could speak to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well. It's a default that makes sense, right, on, on one hand, which is, well, if you don't know what to do, make some money. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's that's not a terrible thing, obviously. But it becomes a terrible thing if, over time, it means that you consistently are, are pushing down your own interests so far that you're not doing the things that you care about Or some, you know, for some people, this is actually not uncommon. They even lose sight. They they kind of forget what they're interested in. Like you ask them, like, well, what are your hobbies, or what do you like to do, and they're just like, I don't know. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh no, this is a person who is clearly like working way too long, working way too hard, and not getting a sufficient balance. Now, you know, I understand, right? You get you got 2,000 hours, you got a bill. So it's not like, oh, everybody needs to take up, you know, ukulele playing and sourdough baking and all the, you know, no, that's not realistic. But as just one example, in the long game, I tell the story about this woman, Sarah, she was really into like jewelry making and, and crafts and things like that. You know, she she did like fine artisanal jewelry and she decided, you know, she's a pretty multifaceted person. She decided she wanted to go to law school because she was really passionate about helping fellow artists and artisans learn about the law. And so she goes to law school, she gets her degree, she gets uh, a job at this mid-size, mid-city firm. And all, all they're doing is like, real estate and, you know, all these transactional elements where it was not talking about the arts. It was not talking about artisans. It was just literally nothing related to what she cared about. And of course, all the people in her life were sort of whispering like, Sarah, it's a good job. You know, and she did it for a number of years because you got law school fees to pay. Eventually she just realized like, look, if I look at where my career would go, if I went fully up the ladder here, I would literally spend my life never doing the thing that I entered the law in order to do. And so I love her story because it's so uh, brassy. She found out early on, she uh, found out about Etsy. And everybody knows Etsy now, the, the big billion dollar craft website. But this was the early days of Etsy when it was just a new, new startup. And she was upstate New York. She bought herself a ticket and unannounced, flew to New York, and basically sat in the office of the CEO until he would meet with her. She had identified different legal issues that might be relevant to them, and she was offering up ideas and, and suggestions. And at the end of their meeting... He was so impressed with the level of detail and thought that she had put into it. He offered her a job as their general counsel because they did not have a GC. And that is how for nine years she became the Etsy general counsel and led it all the way to its IPO process. But for her, that was a way of building a successful and lucrative career, but also staying grounded in her original reason why she wanted to join the law in the first place.
1: There's a portion where you mentioned the the fact of like the importance of thinking in terms of decades and what a massive competitive advantage this can be. If you're willing to go slow, write out short-term losses and setbacks. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, nearly everything in business, if you are a long-term thinker, you can make better decisions and you'll be more successful. Why is this so difficult for people?
0: Well, especially after COVID, I've really gotten into a kind of <laughs> almost obsessive interest of reading books about futurism and predicting futures and, and things like that. You know, the truth is, I'm kind of mad at myself that I didn't predict COVID. <laughs> I realize that's a little irrational because a lot of people didn't predict COVID. But nonetheless, I'm like, I'm like, no, but like, what's coming next? I have to figure it out. And so uh, I've been reading all these books about you know how to do future prognostication. And you know what they all say, which is certainly true, is that. It's just really cognitively complex for us to picture a different future. Like, basically, in our minds, it's just like, well, I guess it'll be kind of like now, but slightly different and maybe my iPhone will be smaller. I mean, you know, like we picture things in these in these very incremental ways where we're, we're missing the big thing or, you know, we, we focus on the wrong thing. It's like, oh, and then the cars will fly. And it's like, well, no, the cars aren't flying now. The cars are probably never gonna fly, let's be honest, because that would just be like really confusing for the FAA. That probably is not gonna be a thing. But, you know, meanwhile, we have literally everything we could ever possibly want in our pockets digitally instantly. Certain things have progressed pretty fast. So thinking in decades, it's just very hard for people to imagine because we have a hard time imagining ourselves, what it would be like to be ourselves in the future, much less, you know, all of the different trends evolving around us. Researchers say that a big um, problem that we have is You know, when we are making short-term decisions, it benefits us today. In many cases, it harms us tomorrow. But, you know, like 10 years, 20 years from now, like, you know, the idea, oh, you know, instead of working out, I'm going to eat the bag of Cheetos or whatever. In some weird part of our lizard brain, we actually consider us 20 years from now to be a different person. And so we don't make that connection. And so there's been really interesting research in financial planning companies. They've done experiments where they show people these aged versions of themselves, and it actually helps them make better investing decisions because it helps them understand oh, I guess that actually is going to be me with the white hair and the wrinkles. And, oh, geez, I'd better be saving more for that person who is, in fact, me. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of these things are, uh, are hard. But at a basic level, Michael, people ask me sometimes, like, well, what is your definition of strategic thinking? My definition of strategic thinking is understanding and doing the things today that will help make tomorrow better or easier, and you know, if we can do that, if we can keep doing the right thing for our future self, whether our future self is next week or 10 or 30 years from now, we'll be moving in the right direction. I want us to be able to all make the choices that like you know, the Dory of 2055 is like, wow, good job, Dory of 2022, nicely done. I think we'd all feel good about that if we could say that.
1: Whether it's growing a business, saving for retirement, or even getting in shape, it's easy to look back and wish we'd gotten started sooner. But before planning for our futures, we must clearly define our goals and commit to the journey that's required to achieve them. Dory describes this process in four waves. Oftentimes in my work
0: doing executive coaching, I would have these conversations with my clients. And, you know, sometimes people would say to me, oh, you know, I just, I feel like I'm in a rut. I'm, you know, I'm working so hard. I'm doing all the things I should be doing, but I'm just not getting anywhere. Like I'm not getting any traction. And so of course, you know, if you're an executive coach, you want to try to unpack that with people like, okay, well, what what are you doing? And, you know, what why isn't the thing that should be getting the result actually getting the result? Like what's going on here? And what I often realized, you know, not not always, but pretty often, Happen, is that what was happening, they were working hard. They were, in fact, doing good things. You know, they were not like watching cat videos and then being mad that they didn't make partner. But the problem was that they were not shifting what they were doing. It was almost like, you know, we get trapped as humans in this idea of like, oh, well, this has been working. It should keep working. But the truth is we have to be sensitive to context. And we're not an assembly line worker, right? You can't just keep, you know, doing the thing, doing the thing, doing the thing. You actually have to do different things at different points. And you have to be smart enough and sensitive enough to know when to shift what you're doing. And so oftentimes what was happening was that Folks were not shifting, and therefore they were feeling stuck because they were kind of stuck. So what I identified, and there's plenty of sort of sub-points, but at a really broad level, when we think about the arc of our careers, there's really four key pieces. The first piece, which I think all of us can probably understand and agree on is um, what I call the learning wave. And that's when you're starting out, maybe you're a new attorney or you're new at a firm or whatever, and you're just figuring out what's going on, right? You're taking it all in, you're figuring out what is this place? How does this place work? Who is everybody? Just kind of getting it down, right? So there is always kind of this orientation process where you have to figure out how this new world works. And then, of course, we we hopefully shift into uh, the next phase, which is what I call the creating phase, which is, okay, you understand who everybody is and what the deal is. Now you need to start participating. Now you need to start sharing your ideas. You need to start speaking up in meetings. You need to you know, raise your hand. You need to volunteer. You know, hey, okay, I'll be on this case. Oh, have you thought about, you know, this point, you know, whatever it is, but you're beginning to contribute in some way and creating intellectual property or you're right Writing something, you're adding to something, you're adding value in a certain way so that you're not just a lump on the wall. We also need to make sure that we at a certain point are shifting into the connecting mode. Because, you know, in a firm structure, you know, let's assume for the sake of argument, you want to make partner. Well, one person doesn't make that decision, typically. I mean, I guess it depends on the firm, but in most cases, there are a lot of partners. And if you have a group of X number of people and 80% of them are like, wait, who is that? Oh, she's been here seven years. I don't even think I've seen her. What? Was that her name? This is not going to go well. You need people to know who you are. You need them to know what your contribution is. And even more than that, you need them to feel like, oh my God, we couldn't lose her. We have to make her partner because we don't want any other firm to get her right and so you get that because of connecting mode where you're building relationships you're you're working on different projects you're volunteering for things you're meeting people you're having conversations so that people not only know you but think positively of you so you have those things and you know it's dialed in now right you're making a contribution people know you're making a contribution and then finally you're able to get to what i call reaping mode and reaping mode is actually what a lot of people consider to be the end state which is yay you're you're respected where you are, right? Maybe you've made partner or whatever your particular goal is. You know, you've, you've landed in a great place. Maybe you're a GC somewhere. Who knows? You're making really good money. Everybody's, you know, list, You know, like, oh, well, you know, what does he think? Let's ask him. And that is a place that feels extremely satisfying because you've worked hard for it. And that's great. But it is also really important to recognize you can't stay in the reaping phase forever because if you get too fat and too happy and you slack off, um, whether it's slacking off when it comes to your professional development, slacking off in terms of you know continuing to build your network and meet new people or whatever, eventually whatever steam got you to where you are is going to run out because the world changes, the world keeps moving forward. And eventually it'll dry up. And so before that happens, you want to enjoy your reaping phase, but you don't want to, you know, try to bask in it forever. You need to disrupt yourself and you need to be willing to go back to the learning phase and to become a student again. And maybe that means, you know, learning about new emerging things. Oh, well, like what's, you know, what are the legal issues uh, with regard to cryptocurrency or, you know, like whatever, whatever the thing is. But it's useful to start asking those questions and to not stagnate and assume that you can coast forever on your successes. We have to keep learning and growing.
1: And I imagine there's going to be a few people listening to this that are thinking, Dory, it just, it just never ends, does it? Right? Because I i thought once I get to this reaping stage, I finally, after all these years, can can just not just reward myself in the fruits of my labor, but, but it is really an infinite game. What type of mindset should we have early on, like just even when you're starting to play the long game and just realizing that the most successful people, as you said, I mean, they enjoy their success, but they recognize when it's time to move on and learn something new and create something new and so on.
0: You know, it's true. I mean, especially perhaps coming out of COVID, where people might hear that and be like, oh my God, that sounds so exhausting. <laughs> Cause you know, we're all a little burned out at this point, frankly. We've had we've had a tough two years. But that being said, you've probably heard heard the saying, which I certainly believe in, which is we all have problems but some problems are better than others, right? If you are a partner that's making a million bucks a year plus and you have widespread professional respect, if you disrupt yourself, I say in air quotes, and work on learning something new, this is actually extremely low risk compared to what life was like when you were 23 years old, right? You can treat it with lightness, and with fun because it is fun because you're learning something new you're stretching yourself but worst case scenario right i mean i don't think this actually will happen but like let's say it just goes terribly and you know oh you know it's a disaster whatever that means i don't even i don't even know what it means but you know oh you're learning about something and like nobody wants to work with you on your cryptocurrency law whatever whatever i mean kind of who cares right? It's okay because you already have a great reputation. You already have plenty of money. You're able to treat it as the kind of hopefully joyful learning enterprise. These are pretty light problems. Like, am I super stressed out that I had a problem with flooding in my bathroom? Yes, I am. Also, if I were in Ukraine right now, I would be so happy if my biggest problem was that my bathroom flooded, right? We have to keep it all in perspective. It should not feel like an exhausting slog until death. That is not the point. The point is, actually, if we keep learning and keep growing, each time around the block, it should get more fun because we're able to enjoy it with fewer of the intense pressures that perhaps we faced on the the initial time when we were first learning or first building those connections.
1: And I know you referenced this throughout, but I I think this is even worth restating that this idea that most of us don't know what it actually takes to succeed. So like meaning that many of us are trying to take our businesses or our firms to places we ourselves have never been. And as a result, our expectations can sometimes be way out of line. And and you mentioned in some cases that one to even get noticed in your field, it can take two to three years of effort and to become a a recognized expert, it could take, you know, five plus years of consistent effort. I'd like for you to kind of speak to like what it takes to really, 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 like not just build notoriety, but just become kind of a a notable brand. And and I'm sure this varies across industries, but, but there's no magic bullets.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of the challenges, of course, in playing the long game and in, in being a long-term thinker, it's that some things, no matter how much we want to rush them, can't be rushed. And that doesn't mean that you're passive. It doesn't mean you're just like making a Pinterest vision board. Obviously, you're working hard. Obviously, you're doing things. But certain things take a while. You know, if you're at a traditional firm, for instance, even if you're like the best, the best third-year associate ever, they're probably not going to make you partner in your third year. Like I would be super surprised if that happened. We often have these weird scoping problems. I mean, obviously it's fairly clear in law firms how things work. And so, you know, you come in with a cohort and so you kind of get the expectations, right? Most people are not going to be so mad because it should have happened in year two or year three um, because you know what the deal is. But, When it comes to other things, when it comes to, you know, if you're running the firm, let's say, and it comes to revenue growth or, you know, other metrics or other milestones, oftentimes we really don't know what we don't know. And it, it kind of shouldn't be that way because we're not trying to like build colonies on the moon, right? People have built law firms before. That is a thing. And so if we took the time to have conversations, to do research, to learn what has been typical in the past with other folks who are in situations like ours, we might have a more realistic scope and be able to, to really understand like, oh, you know, I shouldn't be upset about where I am. Actually, this thing, it just takes two years. So, I mean, it's not to say you couldn't do it faster. I hope you do. Um, But if something normally takes two years, again, you probably won't do it in two months. So just knowing that and being aware of it enables you to have the patience and the fortitude necessary to keep plugging away rather than what happens with a lot of people, frankly, which is in their head, they think it should take two months they give it six months and then they, you know, they quit or they change their strategy radically because they're like, this isn't working. I've given it so much time. Well, actually, you totally haven't. You've given it like a quarter of the time that it should take. You just didn't realize what it should take. So proper scoping about our, our timing and our expectations by learning from previous examples is one of the best things that we can do to ensure that we're more likely to succeed at the business elements of the law.
1: And Talk about the three keys to becoming a long-term thinker. If you could just quickly mention what those are, just to bring it all together.
0: When it comes to being a long-term thinker, you know, one one of the key components that I think gets overlooked in some ways is actually courage. Because the truth is, it is really not easy to stand your ground. I mean, this is, again, everybody says long-term thinking is great. Very few people actually do it. And one of the things that happens is a lot of times other people's voices get in our heads. You know, like, well, why are you still doing that? I thought that was supposed to work out a long time ago, but I don't really see any results. And, you know, and you're like, oh my God, you know, are they right? Am I wrong? And you start to second guess yourself. You know, the interesting thing is I think a lot of people are really afraid that they will be the sucker who's persisting too long at something that is fruitless, and so they give up. But actually, I think what is far more common is that people give up too soon and they don't give things time to germinate. So courage is one of the key elements because you really have to be willing to listen to that still small voice and be willing to ride things out. If you have a conviction that a certain approach, that a certain focus on a set of clients or type of law or what have you will be valuable, that you can bring something uh, to bear and build something, not everybody's going to see it. And so you need to be the one with the vision and the courage. Resilience is another because, I mean, boy, if you have a long enough goal, let's call it a 10-year goal, a 20-year goal, whatever, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the world's going to look like. And so almost certainly there are going to be detours. You're going to get knocked down. So you need to be resilient enough to be able to keep moving forward and, and pursuing it. And then the last piece is curiosity, because ultimately... If we are the opposite, if we are incurious, we often just tend to, you know, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And you keep plowing forward. Well, you know what? The world may have changed. That might not be the right thing to do anymore. But having the curiosity to ask questions, to say, hmm, you know, does this continue to be the right thing? If yes, great. But if not, what other possibilities, what other options are there, I think is a valuable skill because we need to be able to pivot and adapt when it comes to pursuing long-term plans. It's not, you know, being a homing missile that locks in on a target and then never deviates, right? The newest and best uh, homing missiles actually can change when the target moves. And we have to be like that as well.
1: And finally, as, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, Dory, what does being a game changer mean to you?
0: Oh my goodness, Michael. Well, it is a person that somehow profoundly disrupts what was going to happen right it's putting enough of a wrench in the works in a you know in a positive way that whatever was going to be the course of history before it's different now and i think that for all of us you know as we think about how to make a mark how to leave a legacy i mean also you know in a pedestrian sense yes it's how to how to get promoted how to make partner how to get on the best cases but also how to leave a legacy it's being the kind of person that is not afraid to go for big goals and is willing to persist and to seek things out that other people can't see or they're not not ambitious enough to pursue. And if you can do that, you really do have the ability to change the game.
1: I wanna give a huge thank you to Dory Clark for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Dory said that playing the long game means thinking in decades, not days. Whether you're building a team or building a brand, there's no magic bullet to achieve success overnight. When you're patient and committed to the long-term, the rewards can be transformative. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Dory Clark, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking with Emmy Award winner Jason Hare, who directed the Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls documentary series, The Last Dance. I hate using the word art or artist or whatever, but what is art designed to do except to evoke emotion in us? And part of that emotion is inspiration. So to give more people the opportunities to express their voice artistically and inspire more people, like that's what I'm really fired up about now is that there's younger people who are coming up underneath me who I can oversee their projects and put them in a position to win. I always tell whoever's doing something with me or underneath me, I'm not going you're not going to fail because I'm not going to let you. I promise you that. So you're going to succeed. Let's figure out how we're going to do it, but I'm not going to let you fail. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.